Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined as always by Robert Wealthy Camp, personal finance expert here at the Motley Fool. I'm trying to make it up to you from last week. So, in this week's episode, we're joined by Joe Perna, a planner with Motley Fool Wealth Management, to talk about all things life insurance. Do you need it? How much do you need? Where do you get it? All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. So, Allison, please do tell us what's up. Well, bro, we've spent the last year and a half looking for a new hope as COVID continued to strike back again and again. Uh, but now... Da, 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 da. I heard new hopes. So I was just doing the Star Wars thing. I know, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> Increased wealth, decreased spending, and a world opening up is creating a greatly anticipated sequel. Episode 6, Return of the Consumer. Actually, it's more like revenge. All right, bro, cue the music now. Done. I was going to do the Imperial March on that one. Oh, yeah, yeah, that one got... There you go. You're that got welcome. dark. All right. <laughs> In 2019, the savings rate hovered around 7 8%. But then COVID hit, and from March 2020 to April 2021, the personal savings rate jumped to 18.7%, the highest rate for such a sustained period since World War II. And it peaked in April 2020 at about 33%. Even now, while declining, the personal savings rate remains high, about 15% in April and about 12.4% in May. So for the last year or so, not only were we not spending as much money, many of us were making more money. The stimulus packages were a big boost to Americans' income, whether you were employed or not. But even for those who remain employed, wages and salaries kept growing through the pandemic. Median hourly wages have risen at an average annualized rate of at least 3.3% every month since March 2020. Not just the wealthiest either. People with a high school diploma or less, minorities, women, and people living in rural areas have all seen their hourly median earnings increase at an annualized rate of at least 3% throughout the pandemic. So what does that translate to in dollars? Well, since the pandemic, Americans have been able to save an estimated $2.5 trillion more than usual, according to the Fed of New York. And because you know I love talking about the wealth gap in America, I have to mention that the wealthiest 10% of Americans did even better, adding more than $8 trillion to their net worth because of stocks and home values that soared. All right, so get your floaties on because the Washington Post says that a spending tsunami is headed our way, largely due to something called revenge spending. Dun, dun, dun. It's been a while since I've made that sound in a, in a segment, but there you go. Do you have a ton of disposable income with nowhere to dispose of it? And you're also kind of angry that COVID ruined your 2020? Don't fret. Companies hear your cries for revenge and they are going to help you out. As the Washington Post highlighted, companies are seeing the pent-up demand for spending, and it provides a great opportunity to raise prices. And this isn't just a matter of supply and demand. We're talking about revenge luxury. The Wall Street Journal reported back in January that the highest luxury brands flecked their pricing power and were actually able to raise their prices amidst the pandemic. Louis Vuitton raised handbag prices by 6% in May last year and another 3% this year. Christian Dior raised prices by as much as 11%. Bro, I know that really hurt you personally. The fashionista that you are. Personally. Yeah, there we go. With puns like that, you know he's fashionable. (laughs) Even mass market brands are seeing an opportunity to raise prices and dip their toes in the luxury market. 
We're talking brands like J. Crew, whose highest price items are 158% more expensive than compared to 2019. And Uniqlo. Uniqlo. It's like the Japanese Ikea, but for clothes. They are now selling items roughly $100 more than anything they sold in 2019 or 2020, according to the retail research firm Edited. So let me guess, you buy those clothes, you have to take it home and assemble it? Is that, is that how it's like the Ikea of clothes? Yes, that's exactly what it's like. Okay, just want to make sure. <laughs> uh, no, just mass commute, like 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 modern design. They're fast. They're fast. They're a fast fashion. And you get meatballs along with them. Outstanding. Oh man, you could get takoyaki. Now that's that's a good Japanese meatball. It's octopus. All right, vacations were a luxury to begin with, but now we're booking revenge vacations and looking to spend even more than before. The Washington Post talked to a travel agent who is booking two $20,000 cabins for a client for a cruise to the Bahamas. She noted that people don't usually spend that much just to go to the Bahamas. And not only that, but the highest end cabin sold out first and the whole boat was booked in less than 12 hours. All right. We've already talked about the rising cost of real estate in general. So this is just an aside here on revenge real estate. According to Redfin, overall sales of luxury homes rose 26% in the three months ending in April relative to the same time last year. And I don't want to talk about inflation, but the consumer price index rose 5% in May. And the Labor Department says that's the largest increase since August 2008 when it rose by about 5.4% in one month. But when you look at jewelry, the epitome of a luxury item, prices rose 7.4%. The demand for spending on luxury items isn't just here in the U.S. According to a survey by Ruder Finn, 41% of Chinese consumers said they would increase their spending on luxury goods over the next 12 months. 41%. Now, looking to our two-handed economist over there in the corner, saving money is important on a personal level. But spending money is important for a healthy economy. But on the third hand, if prices rise too high too fast, that means Allison has to talk about inflation. And I don't want to talk about inflation. It's all exhausting. But you know what's satisfying? Revenge, a dish best served on Wedgwood. So get out there and start spending, wealthy Americans, as if you needed the encouragement. And that, bro, is what's up. Always look on the bright side of life. Has life insurance been on your mind lately? Well, if so, you're not alone. According to industry trade group Limbra, first quarter 2021 life insurance sales were up 11% year over year, and that's the highest level of growth since 1983. And a survey found that about a third of participants plan to purchase life insurance in the next 12 months. So what's behind this spike in life insurance sales? Well, probably a couple things. First, the COVID-19 crisis probably increased the awareness that, you know, we won't live forever. We can't all be Betty White after all. And then just as historically high government spending and the prospect of future higher tax rates have increased interest in tax-free Roth accounts, so have the income and estate tax benefits of life insurance received renewed interest. So should you also get more life insurance? Is there a better way to manage your current policy? And are the tax benefits about life insurance as good as promised? Well, here to answer those questions and more is Joe Perna, financial planner with Motley Fool Wealth Management, a sister company of The Motley Fool. Joe, welcome to Motley Fool Answers. Well, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate you asking me to come on. 
So back in my financial advisor days, back in the 90s, I had my insurance license, but uh, I think I sold one annuity in my entire career. You, on the other hand, actually have some insurance experience. That's right. I, uh, I worked as a financial advisor at some of the more major wirehouses and then worked for three years at Northwestern Mutual, more as a, an internal consultant, I'd say. So I was helping the reps that uh, went out and actually sold insurance to clients. They would come back to me and ask me to run financial plans, make recommendations based on those clients, you know, the, the data gathering that they had done, and then provide them with some recommendations. But really got to understand not just life insurance, but disability insurance, um, long-term care insurance quite well. And so it was a really nice experience because uh, when you're working as a financial advisor, you're really focused on the markets and investing and uh, the insurance world was... Uh, you know, you get to really know the nuances and you can get creative with some things and see really the different aspects that things might be beneficial or, you know, detrimental depending on the situations. Yeah. So I think we're very lucky to have you on the show because I think a lot of life insurance products have a bad reputation as being sold and not bought, as they say. Uh, yeah. But I think there are some underappreciated aspects of life insurance. Uh, and so let's take a look at six questions that people should ask themselves determine whether they should get insurance, how much, and what type to get. And number one is, do you even need life insurance? So Joe, what do you think? What people should consider getting life insurance? Yeah, the life insurance, I would say, uh, you know, if I have my North, Northwestern Mutual hat on or the insurance industry hat on, everybody needs life insurance. Uh, I would say that from a practical standpoint, uh, I would say if you are, uh, if you have a family, if you have children, and have a mortgage, those are the three key areas that would prompt me to encourage someone to go out and get life insurance sooner than later. Yeah, I would say it's important to think about right. So life insurance replaces either income that someone yeah. was earning and then they passed away, but also can pay for services that someone was providing for free. And there we're talking like a stay-at-home spouse or a caregiving relative. So the question really is to ask, like, so what ha would happen if I or my spouse passed away? If it would be financial, financially devastating, then you probably should look at life insurance. Yeah. And it, when thinking about, like you said, the, the spousal aspect, I mean, the lifestyle shift that might need to be made um, if you know your spouse was to unfortunately or untimely pass is a big thing. So if you were reliant on their income to do your typical things that you enjoy doing and you don't want that lifestyle to change upon something happening to your spouse, having that replacement income is is really significant um, if you're in that situation. Um, but to me, uh, the mortgages tends to be a huge cost. Same thing with a child entering your life. I mean, those are just... Uh, milestones that I think you want to protect and you want to have that protection there for your family if something were to happen to you. There are some estate planning uh, benefits of life insurance, uh, but we'll get to those later in the show. Let's get now, though, into the second question, and that is, okay, let's say you decide you need life insurance. So the next question is, how much should you get? So I'm going to give you a common rule of thumb. 10 times your salary plus $100,000 for every kid you want to put through college. Um, so, Joe, what do you think of this as a rule of thumb and what could people do to maybe come up with a more customized number for themselves? Yeah, I, I think when uh, I feel like I've been doing this for about, I mean, working as a financial advisor and in the financial services industry for about 15 years, and I feel like you can do really customized and detailed kind of cash flow analysis to get to a very 
mathematical number and, and get really, um, you know, using all these different assumptions, whatever your inputs are, getting to some very specific number that feels right for you. And I feel like these rules of rules of thumb are there for a reason because they tend to be pretty accurate. But really, uh, the the way that in the financial or in the insurance industry, what you'll do is look at again from a lifestyle standpoint. So if your spouse was to pass and you were reliant on their income, you would try to do a replacement of income, um, you know, cash flow need. So you would say, what is the lump sum today? If I earn some sort of rate of return on that, like five or six percent what would be the amount that could allow me to replace that person's income for the next 20 years, typically, or, or maybe until retirement. And so if you wanted to, there's calculators online that you can easily do this, but you would look at replacement of income. Uh, on top of that, if a mortgage was uh, you know, extra to whatever that replacement of income was, you would want to add that dollar amount on top. And then for, child, for, for children, typically, uh, I, I don't know of any rule of thumb for things like childcare, um, but in your area, you could certainly look up what childcare costs would be if that spouse was providing those childcare responsibilities um, and maybe not the breadwinner for you. Uh, but uh, And then on top of that, college costs, if you want to cover that, those would be the additional factors that would maybe layer in. But again, to me, when I've seen these numbers run, 10 times salary tends to be pretty, pretty darn accurate. Yeah, I've had the same experience. And I do love calculators as longtime listeners know and just you can just google life insurance calculator you'll get some from financial sites some from insurance companies and i do think it's worthwhile looking at those but the rule of thumb is pretty good i also think it's important to know that you probably already have some coverage so first of all uh you might be covered by life by social security if you pass away um, your kids or your spouse may get benefits and i highly recommend that people sign up for a my social security account and you can see how much your survivors would get and at, at what ages those will end. Uh, and you might get some through your employer, which is always good, but generally speaking, it's not enough. And of course, if you leave the employer, you no longer get it. Um, so those are just some, some places to start to look at in terms of what you already have. So now you decided, okay, I see what I'm going to get. I still need more. Now, what kind of insurance should I get? And that's question number three, what kind should you buy? And really life insurance comes down to two basic types. One is term, and it is just flat out insurance. It's like homeowner's insurance, health insurance. You pay for a year for like a year and you're covered that year. And that's it. It's just insurance. The other type um, goes by a few different names: cash value insurance. Sometimes it's called permanent insurance, but basically it's insurance tied in with some sort of wealth accumulation component. It can be a very conservative component that grows sort of like cash bonds. Sometimes it can grow like uh, the stock market if you're allowed to invest in something like that. So we'll just call that as an umbrella term, cash value insurance. Now, of course, cash value sounds better, right? If I can get insurance and get an investment component, why wouldn't I do that? Well, the answer is it comes down to being pretty darn expensive. Um, I'm going to provide some estimates from a NerdWallet article. And NerdWallet actually has a great series of articles on life insurance. So let's say that you are a 30-year-old male in good health. You want a $500,000 life insurance policy. If you get a 20-year term, it's only going to cost you $228 a year. You want a whole life policy and whole life being a form of cash value. It's going to cost you over $4,000 a year. The older you are, it's going to be even be more expensive. So let's say you're a 40-year-old female. You want a 20-year term, $500,000 policy. It costs you under $300 a year. 
whole life policy, $5,400 a year. So for this reason, the standard advice is choose term and invest the rest. Just buy the insurance and then invest the difference. So Joe, do you think that's generally good advice? And, and why might someone consider getting some form of a cash value policy? Yeah, I, I'd say generally buying term and investing the difference. The big caveat being you need to be investing that difference into um, you know, something that's uh, an attractive investment vehicle, whether it's index funds like the S&P 500 or something. But a lot of times people will say, and sometimes in the insurance industry, people point to yeah, people, it's great in theory to buy term and invest the difference, but most people don't actually invest the difference. And so by doing the whole life, you're actually committing to a savings program. And I think there is some validity there. And so if you are going to be buying term and invest in the difference, you want to make sure that investment component is happening. Because really what the whole life insurance provider is doing is saying, you can give us these funds and we're going to invest those funds on your behalf and give you some dividend and give you a rate of return in the policy for our own investing prowess. Whereas you can take the additional costs of them doing that, do it yourself, but you have to be comfortable with investing. And you know our listeners of Motley Fool and Motley Fool Answers and, and the different Motley Fool podcasts that are available... Um, People are generally pretty comfortable on the investing side. So I think you can feel comfortable with that strategy. Um, where I tend to see, and, and what's interesting is I would talk to some clients when I was uh, at Northwestern Mutual who had been longtime cash value insurance policyholders. Um, and they had witnessed the dot-com bubble you know, bursting. They had witnessed the global financial crisis in 2008, where the market was heavily beaten up. And they would talk about how their, their life insurance policies, their whole life, their cash value policies were some of the best investments that they had made because they never had to lose sleep about watching their account values go down. And that was a big concern to them. They, you know, we come across some uh, prospective clients at Motley Fool Wealth Management and they'll tell us, you know, I just, you know, I don't want to lose money, but I expect to get 10% a year. And, you know, the, the cost to the game, the, the cost of investing in the market is you're going to see volatility. You're going to see your account values go down at, at times. Um, and within cash value life insurance, you do have this kind of steady, um, steady growth pattern associated with it if you're invested for a substantially long period of time. Um, and then, as you mentioned before, uh, with estate planning, that's another avenue where permanent insurance like cash value or some of the hybrids are uh, impactful and can be really beneficial. But I would say for a majority of folks, buying term and invest the difference is, is the great place to be. Yeah, because for, for the estate planning benefits, you have to have the insurance last as long as you do. Which, exactly. You know, well into your 90s, possibly. Whereas with term, uh, it's very difficult to get term insurance beyond age 80 or 85. So you kind of have to do cash value on the permanent side. Uh, let's say someone decides to go with term. Maybe they're uh, you know, a young family, have a couple of kids. You have the choice of doing annually renewable term where the, the, the premium goes up a little bit every year or doing 20 or 30 year level term. In that situation, the cost over the course of having the policy might be lower, but you're committing to higher upfront premiums. Um, you have any sense on, on which one is best and, and whether 20, 30 years is sufficient? Yeah, I, I think the if you keep that long term in mind and you're able to, you know, go back to the original purpose of why you bought the insurance and that that, that rationale is still valid, um, you know, keeping that that 20 or 30 year term policy 
is definitely the most cost-effective route, as you as you said. Um, and so, in in my or from my perspective, depending on your age, how long you intend to be holding that insurance. So, again, with a mortgage involved or with children, which are which are those kind of major milestones that I think people tend to start thinking about insurance and how much and maybe what years those should be. People will you know, be thinking about how long am I going to have that mortgage? If it's a 30-year mortgage, maybe you tie your life insurance to be um, along those same lines. Obviously, as you're paying down your mortgage, the principal is going down. And so, if you start with a $500,000 mortgage, you know, after 30 years or after 25 years, that mortgage is now $50,000 or something along those lines. And so, you won't need that bulk of insurance, but there is still some, you know, replacement of income costs if your kids are just getting to college at that time. Again, those are all factors that you want to kind of uh, figure out the timing component and whether or not 20 or 30 year makes sense. And also, you know, with things like the fire movement taking more of a hold on on people who are wanting to retire earlier um, and maybe saying, hey, instead of 65 being the normal retirement age, maybe it's now 55, doing something like a 20 year term policy would maybe make more sense for someone in, in that type of situation. So it would really just be catered to, you know, your needs. And uh, again, what you want to make sure is just you're going back after maybe 10 years of having the policy what was our original objective? It was to cover XYZ. Does it still make sense to keep this amount in force? Or should we maybe reconvene about uh, adjusting something that we need to? Um, but that would be how I'm, yeah, that'd be how I, I'd be kind of just thinking through and making that decision. And, and it can change over time. I mean, there are certainly life stages and life circumstances that can warrant making a sig- significant shift to what type of insurance you might have. I'll just say personally, I have a couple of policies because um, I, I bought my first one when my son was born. And because I'm a cheapskate, I just went with the 20-year level term thinking, oh, in 20 years, my son will be in college. Ideally, we'll be fine uh, financially. Well, that 20-year policy is now coming up. And I, and I kind of wish I had gone with 25 or 30 years. Uh, and the thing about if you decide to go with the term insurance... Getting extra term or getting an extra amount, extra one, two, three hundred thousand dollars added to the policy, it's not really that expensive. So if I could go back in time and done it, I probably would have done done longer than twenty year term. Yeah, that's a fantastic point. And like you said, I mean, adding an additional hundred or two hundred thousand dollars to the policy at the onset is you're not going to even notice the the cash flow difference to to your you know monthly payments. Um, yeah, that's a huge point. And just to circle back on kind of the estate planning aspect and with term, there are companies out there that when you buy a term insurance policy, and let's say down the line, um, you have, uh, you know, let's say you're a small business owner and your business is growing and your estate is actually going to be becoming an issue down the line. You're seeing that becoming a higher probability. There are policies and insurance companies out there that will allow you to convert that term policy into a permanent policy based on your original health characteristics. So rather than waiting or or being concerned about, hey, I'm 50 and now I might have to change, um, you know, the, the, or I need to get this insurance at this point based on my current health characteristics. If you got that insurance, let's say a 30 year term, when you were 30 years old, they'll, they'll use that original health characteristic for that conversion that, that you wind up doing, again, if that ends up fitting into your needs. And so that can be an attractive feature that, that some policies have. Yeah, that's a good point. If you decide that you need insurance, get it as soon as possible because the younger you are, the cheaper it's going to be and the less likely you're going to have any kind of a health issue that will then drive up your premiums. 
All right, so let's move on to the next question. You've decided roughly that you need it and how much you should have. The next question is, where can you buy it? Uh, and these days, it's pretty darn easy to buy term insurance online. I recently wrote an article about it, and I'm just going to provide a few websites that will provide you easy quotes. AccuQuote, LifeQuotes, PolicyGenius, Quotacy, Q-U-O-T-A-C-Y, and then Value Penguin. Very easy to just go enter your information, uh, get a quote based on what you say. Now, some of these, most of them actually, will require some sort of follow-up medical examination, but not all of them. Um, so, Joe, what do you think of people buying life insurance from the internet? And where else should they go if that's not the best option? Did you say lemonade on that? I feel like that's one that might you might want to throw in there. Uh, yeah, lemonade is a good point. And that's a, a relatively recent entrant. And that's one that will offer you a policy without the medical examination. And you're seeing more and more of that these days. Yeah. And it, for, from my standpoint, I think a lot of those um, websites that you had provided, those are fantastic places to start and can really help you hone in on what maybe the cheapest policy is. Um, and to me, if I'm looking for term and I, and I have the foresight or if I'm thinking long-term and, and, um, really believe that I'm not going to need any adjustments to that term policy down the line. I think going with a cheap option with a reputable name, those, those are important because you want the company to be there in 20 years to be able that if something did happen, they can pay out on that policy. Um, but another thing that I would consider uh, would be, you know, whoever, if I am bundling my uh, I feel like you know it's a progressive commercial, right? Um, with that bundle, uh, where they're at the beach and they're talking about it's a bundle, it's a bundle. And so, in my mind, if you have homeowners, if you have a car policy all through the same provider, perhaps they have some sort of discount by also doing some sort of term insurance. So that's something that I think that you could check out. Um, and then, uh, bro, you had mentioned this earlier. You know, your employer offers some maybe voluntary uh, additional insurance that you could buy, and that that is an option and probably a pretty cost-effective option. However, if you were to leave that job and move to a new company, um, you know, if they provide the same type of insurance, that's a question mark. Um, where is your health, you know, how has your health changed since maybe that initial job? And is that going to affect you being able to get insurance at a new company or uh, if you're not, you're going to be no longer working? So it is going to be, I think, provide it'll provide some headaches. And I would prefer to see someone who does need insurance to go out and get supplemental insurance outside of the company that they work for. Yeah. I'll point out that these days, too, there's some great sites that rate insurers uh, and includes Investopedia, NerdWallet, and The Balance. Like a lot of sites that rank, rank rate financial products, there might be some uh, conflicts of interest there. You want to understand how those websites are getting paid, but I think the information is still helpful. And part of those reviews will include the insurer's rating. You, you talked about how you want to make sure you get a highly rated insurance company. You want to make sure that they're around. One rule of thumb there is just choose someone that's rated A or better, but that's just a rough rule of thumb. Um, okay, so let's talk about why someone might go to an insurance professional. One might be, for example, that you have health issues. So tell us about why you should see a professional and, and maybe the, who you should see, the difference between a broker and agent, those types of things. Uh, yeah, that's a, a great question. And uh, 
when I think about some of those health issues, that is something where when you speak with someone, a professional who understands the insurance world really well, and again, the, the nuances of the insurance world, it's helpful to have someone who might know, hey, this company I know does not uh, concern themselves with this type of health issue. And so they can kind of um, you know, help you navigate the decision making so that you're not turned down by an insurance company because if you are turned down if you're if you have a policy that's rejected that can look negatively upon you for trying to apply for additional or other health insurance or I'm sorry other life insurance policies and so it is important that you have someone if you do have health issues navigate around what insurance companies would be beneficial based on those conditions and it is helpful to be you know uh, honest with the professionals so that you can again so they can navigate uh, around which companies might be checking for whatever those issues are. And so when I think about in Colorado, something that, uh, you know, comes up is, you know, uh, marijuana is legal here. And so some people, I have a friend who had recently gone and, and they had a professional who said, is this something that we should be concerned about? Because there's certain companies that are going to check for that. Again, just that nuance will help you with making sure that you're not going to get rated a certain way. And again, that classification could hurt you going forward and, uh, making applications or requests at other insurance companies. So that is one benefit. And then additionally, there are a lot of hybrid policies. We talked about term and we talked about permanent and, and kind of whole life or cash value life insurance um, as kind of two general, generally speaking, those are two big categories. And there are a lot of middle ground between them. And depending on what someone is looking for, and I would say in particular, more around estate issues, having some nuance is helpful and having someone help navigate the many different policies out there, someone that you can really trust. If you can get referrals to a professional that, um, uh, that, that tends to be the best way to find out about who is really um, a prime candidate for your business. Uh, I think getting referrals is a, is a great way to start, um, but helping you navigate that those hybrid policies. So when I think about estate planning and I think about, okay, if you want to do something like uh, that you mentioned in, in your article, the irrevocable life insurance trusts, a lot of those are funded by what are called guaranteed universal life policies that are a little bit different. They're not as expensive as your typical cash value or whole life insurance policy. And so having someone help with navigating, okay, what would be the best policy for this specific situation? And then what's going to be cost effective and having someone work with you through those, through those items. Additionally, um, there are some uh, life insurance policies that also have long-term care provisions on them or maybe chronic illness riders. And those things are also helpful. So if you want to not only get life insurance, but also if you were to have a long-term care event and need to go into an assisted living facility or a nursing home prior to needing that life insurance, uh, a hybrid policy that has both attached could provide some um, support during during that that type of issue. And so again, having a professional that understands the nuances is extremely helpful in those in those situations. So between the two, one sort of rule of thumb is that you have brokers and agents. And a broker represents you, whereas the agent represents either a group of companies or a single company. And when you understand that, the standard advice often is, we'll go with a broker, of course, because then the broker can look over a span of many providers and choose the best policy for you. Whereas the agent, if you go to, for example, an Allstate agent, they're going to sell you an Allstate policy, generally speaking. So, But given your experience, is it fine to go with an agent or do you think most people should start with a broker? 
Yeah. And I have really almost all my experience has been with the broker side. Uh, and so when I think about, uh, I think similarly with maybe your mortgages, where if you go to a bank and they only have, you know, they, they have the, their 30 year mortgage option, they don't have the ability to, you know, scan and, and look to see what other banks are providing. And you're somewhat locked in. I would think the same thing for an agent. And so I mentioned earlier that if you have your, you know, your home insurance, your auto insurance, and you want to look to maybe tack on your life insurance to that policy, there might be some sort of bundled discount there. But outside of that, I would personally be seeking out a broker um, to be able to, uh, like you said, um, be able to scan all of those different insurance companies and give you the best offers and really understand your needs and goals and can tailor that recommendation to you know your specifics. Um, I, another thing that I'll just always... I always like to say this, I, I am big on just the, the kind of misaligned incentives in the financial services industry in general. And so just know um, in, in the back of your mind when you are meeting with brokers, um, in the in, at the end of the day, that first year premium that you're paying to the insurance company, that is a di direct reflection of their compensation. And so, understanding that if they are recommending um, a whole life policy, and really you don't feel it's right for you, just realize that I think the numbers that you mentioned, if it's four thousand dollars for that first year, recognize that they're getting paid somewhere close to that. What I've seen in the past is eighty to one hundred percent of that first year premium goes into their pocket as a as a commission. So if that term policy only pays them two hundred dollars for that year, they're only getting two hundred dollars versus that four thousand dollars. That's a huge difference. And in the end, most people are good actors and trying to help people. That's I think that's why I got into the industry and why many people get into the industry. Uh, but in the end, those incentives are going to drive behavior. And so just be aware that if there is a higher commission product, there is that question mark of you know. Uh, you know, is it really in my best interest? And just make sure that you're ask, you're asking, you know, sometimes difficult questions and making sure that they are looking out for your best interest. Excellent, excellent point. And and the person who is trying to sell that policy will often emphasize the tax and estate planning benefits. So that's the next big question. What are the tax and estate planning benefits of life insurance? Yeah, so the tax benefit that really gets... Um, uh, looked at and highlighted uh, by people that tend to, you know, focus on selling cash value and, and permanent policies, whole life policies, are going to be the tax-free growth associated with it. So when you put the funds in, part of that premium goes to insurance, but part of it goes into this cash value bucket. And based on uh, it, for a whole life policy, the dividend credit policy of that insurer is going to uh, end up. Uh, you know, adding to that cash value that you're putting, the premium that's going into the cash value portion of things so that you're able to generate a rate of return. Uh, so long-term, they may say at, at Northwestern Mutual or the other insurance providers like New York Life or Mass Mutual, they have certain uh, dividend rates that they've credited and they might have 100 years of saying, hey, we credit 5.5% dividends. It has been our average dividend payment over 100 years. Um, now, does that mean that you're getting a 5.5% rate of return on your cash value? 
Well, no, because part of the money is going towards the paying for insurance. Part of the money is going towards administrative and other expenses. So not all of it is getting credited with that rate. And a lot of times insurance agents or insurance brokers might skip that part of things and just say, yeah, our five and a half percent dividend. But in reality, what you what all these policies do, if you're looking at a whole life policy and really want to understand the return that you're getting, and again, specifically on a whole life policy, you can ask them to run. Um, illustrations that show the internal rate of return. So what is my cash value actually going to do? What's the rate of return that you're projecting based on the current dividend rate for 30 years or 40 years? You can run that so you at least have an understanding of, okay, this is cash value growth um, that and tax-free growth and tax-deferred growth. Uh, you know, Tax-free is the main focus here. Uh, but what is it that you're actually seeing on the dollars that you're putting into the policy. And one issue with those, with the cash that you're building in those policies, yeah, you can access it in a tax-free fashion, but it is a loan against the policy. Now, whether or not those loans need to be paid back, um, you know, it, you don't, uh, at least with Northwestern Mutual and the policies that we tended to see, you did not have to pay those back. But what it would do is it would just decrease the death benefit. So if you had a half a million dollars uh, in a death benefit and you had $100,000 that you had taken out tax free, that loan would just be deducted from the death benefit. And if you were to pass away and you had not paid back that loan, uh, your beneficiaries would get $400,000. Yes, and it's important to know too. If you take out a loan and then you surrender the policy, you just stop paying premiums. You, you, and the loan exceeds basically the basis in the policy. You could be taxed on the difference um, at ordinary income rates. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. a huge point. Um, the estate planning benefits. Uh, what's your take on those? Is that something most people should consider, or is this just something just for people who? Um, will be beyond the estate tax exemption, which this year is, I think, $11.7 million per person. Yeah. the uh, I would tend to say if you're below that estate planning minimum, I don't see any reason to really uh, have have that planning need. Um, now, as you mentioned in your, your article on rural retirement, there um, you know is expectations that that estate tax... Uh, the, the maximum per person is going to be decreased. I mean, it's sunsets in 2026, um, but there also is talks with the Biden, some of the Biden tax proposals that they could lower that to even a more dramatic amount. Maybe it's down to $2 million per person. And it, I mean, it, it's impossible to know where they're going to end up going uh, with uh, the, the legislation in the end, what's going to actually be written down and put into effect. Um, but I think there is some concerns that if you're close to that estate, um, level. I mean, even if your state is starting, I think, to grow to that uh, the, the sunsetting number, which I think was it six million dollars. Was that right? Yes, approximately. I mean, it'll be adjusted for inflation by the time that year goes around. But yes, about six million per person is what they're projecting at this point in 2026. Yeah, and so if I'm getting close as an individual, or so for a couple up to 12 million, uh, I think that having uh, you know and, and thinking about your own personal situation it, and, and you know, all of this in financial planning comes down to your, someone's personal situation. But when I talk with clients, a lot of times we talk about, does it make sense? Uh, do you want your kids? Uh, and a lot of times the beneficiaries are the children of the, of the uh, you know, individuals that we're speaking with. And does, do you want them to have additional funds? If you're leaving them, let's say, uh, $15 million, are you really concerned about that tax that they're going to be paying? Sometimes they say, uh, you know, yes. And sometimes they say, 
they should be happy that they're getting any money in the end. And so if they end up getting taxed a bit, it really doesn't matter. But for folks that are concerned around um, you know, the estate tax that would be levied on leaving above that maximum, I think an ILID is a very commonly looked at, um, you know, irrevocable life insurance trust is something that's commonly looked at um, that you know, can be fairly easily utilized to offset what those taxes will be. Yeah, and this is a very complicated topic. Definitely something you need to talk to a professional about, but I'll just highlight two things. It's important that you don't own the policy, and that's why it's often put into a trust, because if you own the policy, it is included in your estate. Um, and another tax benefit of life insurance, by the way, is that it's income tax-free. So if you're the beneficiary of a million-dollar policy, you don't pay taxes on that. So that is something also to throw into that whole mix. Okay, we just have a few minutes left. Uh, it may be perhaps after you've listened to all this, you've thought, you know what, I have this cash value policy or this insurance policy. After listening to all this, I don't think I need it anymore. So our final question is, Joe, what can you do with a policy you no longer want? Yeah, and you, I think, highlight in the article several things that I think are important to understand. Surrendering the policy is obviously something that you can do, um, where you basically, if you've paid into it for five years, whatever the cash value or the surrender value is, you're accepting that back from the insurance company. Um, a lot of people have trouble. I, I have talked to people who have said, I've paid into this thing for five years. I might as well just continue to pay into it because I don't want to lose that insurance cost. That that's So if they put in $50,000 into a policy and there's a $20,000 surrender value, they've lost $30,000. And it, it, in my mind, it is a, a sunk cost that we cannot overcome. And what you have to think about is in the current moment, is this the best place to put your money? If you've decided that this is not a worthwhile policy and I should be doing something else with the the premiums and, and putting it towards another vehicle that might be a better investment, um, obviously factor in, uh, I mean, just factor in what that future outcome is going to look like or what is the better outcome for you on a go forward basis. You can't go back and recoup those losses, unfortunately. And so you're going to have to really just just move on and again, make the best decision with the current information that you have. Another possibility is you can exchange it for another insurance product. Uh, and it's actually called a 1035 exchange. It's, it's a tax-free move. And you can use it to buy another policy that you like better a paid up policy, or even a, a whole different type of insurance product like an annuity. Yeah, that's a great alternative. And and you also reference um, a long-term care policy is another option. Um, and so uh, for folks that do want some assistance with on the assisted, if there was an assisted living facility need down the line, nursing care, um, you know, that is another, another option for that 1035 exchange. So yeah, the final word on this, I will just say is it can be very complicated about what to do with an existing policy. So highly recommend that you talk to an expert. It could be the person who originally sold you the policy, assuming you still trust her or him and you don't feel like that you were taken advantage of. If you have a financial planner, maybe even an accountant if they understand it, because there are um, can be some financial consequences to switching policies or just to giving up a policy when maybe you you could have just exchanged it for a better policy in your situation. Um, so thank you, Joe, for joining us. Any concluding thoughts on, on helping people think about their life insurance? Uh, I mean, I think... I hate painting things in such a broad brush. I feel like a lot of times I hear people that just say all insurance is bad or I mean, all, all whole insurance, whole life insurance, all permanent insurance is bad. 
And it really does come down to depending on your goals, your needs, objectives, everyone is different. And, and there are uh, times where uh, permanent insurance does make a lot of sense. As I mentioned with my um, just little anecdote earlier, we talked to many clients that had long-term whole life policies that were very happy with how they had performed. And again, just not having that downside and seeing them as just that kind of consistent growth that they could access in a tax-free fashion. Again, if you understand those policies, they can be beneficial. So I don't you know, just like saying that all, in, all permanent insurance is bad and it doesn't make any sense to have it. Um, it is nuanced and talking with someone who really understands the ins and outs is extremely helpful and trying to make sure that they're a CFP certified financial planner and um, are looking out for the best in, for your best interest is really important. Excellent points. Again, our guest has been Joe Perna of Motley Fool Wealth Management, a sister company of the Motley Fool. Joe, thanks for joining us on Motley Fool Answers. Thanks so much for having me. It was a pleasure. That's the show. It's edited vengefully by Rick Engdahl. Our email is answers at fool.com. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. Mm-hmm.